Hey, y'all. Welcome to this week's episode of Thoughts of Peaches. This is Peaches. How you doing? So, just as I promised, this is going to be a video episode. I am on Instagram Live right now while I'm recording to be broadcast on Anchor, where I handle all of my podcasts. And then it will be on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everything else. So, this is a year review of 2020. There's been a lot of chaos and mess going on. And we're just going to touch on the things that we're going and hopefully leaving behind them this year and what we're going to work on as we start next year. Um, I didn't really do much of a format for this. I'm kind of going off the top of my head. I had a lot going on, especially with um, work stuff, life stuff, the USPS kind of messing around with me, as you can see. My lovely backdrop finally came. I have my lovely little ring light so I can do some cute little visuals and lighting and stuff. Give myself, oh, God, I need to shave. Ugh. Um, I also have the wonderful remote here. I can play with the lighting. Uh, I can do some things on TikTok soon. I'm also on TikTok playing around with stuff like that, but nothing crazy. So let's talk about 2020. 2020 has been a very interesting year for multiple reasons. Um, Worldwide pandemic, the chaos of the election and the residual um, lead up and aftermath to the election, um, multiple celebrity and tra celebrity tragedies, deaths, gossip, and things like that. And we're going to go through a couple of things that kind of stuck with me. Um, first, let's talk about Miss Corona. Her visa is not expired, she is still here, and apparently, she has a warped mutated cousin that has popped up. So um, things are not going to be ending as soon as we hoped, even with all the talk and speculation about the vaccine and things like that. The vaccine has rolled out, but now with this new strain of the virus, we want to make sure that everything works out the way it needs to, who gets it, who's not getting it, when they're getting it, and how effective it is. And the side effects, we've already seen... Um, one of the most prevalent side effects we've seen reported is people suffering from Bell's palsy after the vaccine. And it was mostly given to frontline workers and essential um, workers and stuff like that first. So yeah, that's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. I forgot to put my phone on silent. One second. There we go. Um, it's interesting seeing how this plays out because a lot of people are nervous about the vaccine because um, distrust in the government and stuff like that, which is very warranted, especially with um, BIPOC communities, Black, Indigenous people of color and stuff like that, because the government does have a checkered past of experimenting on people of color for all kinds of different things for either medical or military applications. So people are nervous, and you have the conspiracy theorists talking about microchips and things, which, listen, y'all are on social media talking all this stuff. They're tracking you anyway, so whatever. Um it's, it's a weird situation because it's all kinds of dynamics of either social faith, cultural faith, and things like that that will affect people's perception of these kind of things. And then how Corona has impacted your personal life, what you do for a living. A lot of people have lost loved ones. Um, a lot of people have suffered the effects of Corona and survived or it's affected their livelihood and work. I, as my full-time job, work in nightlife and hospitality. And yeah kind of everything's on pause indefinitely for us right now because when you work in an industry that strives on volume and people going out and being around each other, 
that can't really happen right now because it's a public health and safety issue. Um, specifically in the U.S., and this will segue into the next point, is unfortunately our governing bodies politicized the epidemic, um, not only internally within the country, but how they addressed it, calling it the Chinese flu and the Wuhan virus and things like that and the Kung flu, um, creating some kind of um, international discourse between us and some of peop the people who were our allies or economic um, support. And then the bickering between the Democrats and the Republicans about whose fault it was, who was doing this, who was doing that, who wasn't doing enough, then the random spewings of <laughs> idiocy and nonsense from our soon-to-be-gone commander and Cheeto. <clears throat> um, now, with the politics of everything, it's been a heated battle all year between the right and the left about what's going on. <laughs> Corona brought out the worst in everybody, the finger pointing in the name, calling it how things needed to be handled. Then <laughs> the election. The fact that we are still dealing with stuff from this election almost a month and a half later is crazy. Everybody wants to contest this and that and the other, and he wants a recount of this, that, and the other, and hold this, hold that. I'm not... Sir, you lost. By a lot. People are tired of you. Even some of the people that supported you before have changed sides because they're tired of you and your buffoonery and your lack of leadership and the people you associate with representing such hatred for other people, xenophobia, misogyny, Islamophobia, homophobia, transphobia, certain policies and procedures you put in place to um, disenfranchise people even further than they already are between the BIPOC community, the immigrant community, um, even people who are undocumented, um, trying to reverse DACA, having children in cages and never addressing, never addressing it directly. Um, your refusal to denounce white supremacy groups and telling them to <laughs> stand down and stand by as though you are their leader. Um, yeah, you've you, th this country has been put in a pressure cooker that hopefully will have the lid open before it explodes. Um, the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement <laughs> with the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and countless others at the hands of police brutality and irresponsibility. I say and irresponsibility because in a lot of these cases, um, there's a lack of due diligence done on the hands of the law enforcement involved. And I respect what the job of law enforcement should be. I don't think it is being handled properly. Um, if you look at some of the fundamental behaviors you're seeing, it's a lack of proper training. Now that is either by fault, faulty training, lack of information or design. Maybe you're just being trained to be biased, but that needs to be remedied. There's no reason for George Floyd to have been suffocated with a knee on his throat or for them to have been in the wrong house or in the Breonna Taylor shooting um, and have her die 
being shot in her sleep or the multiple other cases of mistaking items for um, firearms or feeling their life is in danger. When you as a police officer very obviously have multiple forms of defense before you get to a point of needing to use lethal force and your immediate defense is you felt you were threatened. Um, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't. Um, and the Black Lives Matter movement being able to unify so many people under a cause through the protest and the riots, um, which the looting was part of that, but that's a whole separate issue. And there's a lot of theories about why the looting took place. Disenfranchised people being upset and wanting things, people being opportunistic and taking advantage of the situation, or people trying to sabotage the movement and making it look bad through their actions. Um, also, the exposure of white privilege to a grander scale and the concept of calling um, <laughs> obnoxious white women Karens and their level of complaints and fragility in their behavior from the incident in Central Park to the couple who um, stopped the gentleman in California outside of the building that he owned questioning him or the fact that people are no longer letting things, things go by and these people are being called out on it. There was just an incident recently where a woman in a hotel in Soho claimed her phone was stolen by a black man's son and assaulted them in the hotel lobby. And the hotel accommodated her fragility without doing their due diligence to um, sort out the situation properly. And now there's a whole big thing about who she is. People are losing their jobs for this shit. You're not getting away with it anymore. The revolution is being televised now. People can see what's going on. It's not anything new that's happening. It's that people are being more exposed to this, and that's for the good and the bad, because the good is people are seeing that this is not new. This is not oversensitivity. This is not um, over-exaggeration of what's happening. But also people are now emblazoned and emboldened to not care. They don't hide their racism or their bias anymore, which is problematic. Um, speaking of the Karens and things, I saw a video uh, the other day about a young lady who was a server or and or hostess at a cafe who had had enough of dealing with selfish people, specifically a Karen, who did not want to wear her mask in the establishment when she walked in. They very clearly told her she could take the mask off once she sat down and had ordered her food, but she refused to put the mask on. Mind you, she had the mask in her hand the whole time. To the point where the young lady had had enough and said, it's because of you, I cannot work. It's because of you, they cannot afford to pay me what they need to pay me to come in here and risk my life to work here. So I quit. People have lost the sense of personal accountability for the greater good. Their individual needs and wants and inconveniences trump everything else. And that bleeds into white fragility, which the Black Lives Matter movement is trying to combat. What's happening in the political system, they're only looking out for their constituents or the people who are putting money in their pockets and lobbying behind them or 
even with the coronavirus, people are politicizing and using religion to defend their individual goals, not realizing we have a whole country and greater than a whole world who's being affected by this. Countries have closed their borders to people flying in, and you're worried about, oh, I'm going to mess up my makeup. Oh, I can't breathe as freely as I would like to. Oh, it's against my religion. Ciao, bye. Bye. The 12 plagues of Egypt, they put lamb's blood over their doors to protect themselves. And you worry about wearing a mask? Or y'all eating pussy, sucking dick, and eating ass? Got your face buried all up and something you don't worry about breathing in. So the seven to eight minutes it takes you to go get a sandwich, a cup of coffee, or something, you got to keep a mask on. Get over it. Or states are mandating these things, and you want to be upset with <laughs> essential workers. I put that in air quotes for a reason. Essential workers who are enforcing these rules. Now, the reason I put that in air quotes is like restaurant employees and stuff like that considered essential workers because me personally, I know how to cook. Grocery store, essential. Um, hospital, law enforcement, fire department, essential. City sanitation, stuff like that, essential. I can go to the grocery store to buy some groceries, come home and cook. I won't starve. But those of you who feel the need to go out to eat and forcing restaurant employees to be essential workers, you need to respect that. You need to respect that these people are there for you, to serve you, to provide service to you amongst everything that's going on. So for you to not only want to have an attitude about having to wear a mask, then, read an article that even said this, People's spending habits, because of the pandemic, are reduced and they are tipping less. And it's not so much <laughs> just because people aren't working. It has brought out the dregs of humanity to go out and eat at restaurants. Because, oh, it's not crowded. We can go to a nice place. But you're not tipping. You're not spending a lot. You're not fully supporting an establishment. Then when places close or have to shut down or something, all of a sudden it's like, oh, my God, why are they closed? I didn't know. Blah, 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 blah. Girl, sit down. Sit down. Um, on a personal note, for the next issue, um, mental health has been strained for a lot of people. I myself have been going through a lot of anxiety, um, bouts of depression over this because I have groomed and designed my life to there to... Sorry, there's a break in the audio recording for the episode. I'm going to try to splice that up later. But there's a need for people to be there, for people to spend money, for people to come out in groups and have birthday parties and celebrations and things like that. <clears throat> and we can't do that right now. To the point where we were shut down, New York has just closed all indoor dining. They're allowing outdoor dining, but it's wintertime. That's not practical. I currently work at a venue in New Jersey and my schedule has even been cut down. I was a full-time salary manager. Now I'm working two days a week. And the struggles of figuring out your survival, making ends meet. And I'm grateful for everything I have, the blessings I have. I have a roof over my head for now and things of that nature. But there are other people that have less and are going through more. And it's a lot to put on somebody's shoulders and on their mind. Um, there's things that people deal with that you would never understand that they're going through on top of Everything that comes with the pandemic, losing your job, losing your financial stability. You may have lost a friend or family member or something like that to the pandemic. You may not have been able to go home for the holidays 
as you would and your family being your rocking, your point of grounding. And we're just stuck. And there's not a lot we can do. And it's a lot, um, they say try to go to therapy, try to talk to people. We're all going, therapists need therapy right about now. Um, I've been finding a lot of things in meditation. That's part of the reason I've been kind of inconsistent with doing the podcast is I've just been inspired but unmotivated. And I think that's a lot of what's going on. People want to do things. People see things and feel things. But it's just like, ugh. The world we live in is so draining right now. Um, but positives. Um, social media has taken hold as a platform for people to communicate, reach out, and stay connected through all of this. You have social media things like TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, all kinds of things to keep people in contact, keep people informed more than anything. I've even been telling people a lot, especially living in New York, if you need to contact the Department of Labor, they stay active on their Twitter page. A lot more people have found resources through that than trying to wait on hold on the phone and stuff like that. And luxury I have of living in New York, we try to stay ahead of that on certain things as far as how do we communicate and disseminate information. Governor Cuomo does his addresses. He's very active on social media. So information is disseminated very openly, freely, and quickly. Um, I'm still pissed off about the whole MTA thing because that's a major hindrance on my life. I understand it, but that's my personal gripe. But I'm not holding anybody a gun in anybody's head because I'm, my personal desire and inability to drive makes me need the subway. But they close the subway for cleaning, what they're supposed to be doing during this pandemic. Um, a lot of people have found other creative resources and reached out to um higher education or further education because sometimes you have to refine and find a new skill set or find a new way around what you're doing um learning new skills like for example getting this ring light and this backdrop and stuff like that so i can make content to share information or maybe at some point i may try to monetize it in some way shape or form um or even folks using the OnlyFans platform which a lot going on with that right now about restrictions and censorship and even some of the pol politicians saying they're actively seeking to <clears throat> reduce access to adult content for people, which is a whole puritanical thing that I don't understand. Um, sex work is work, whether it be in person or through digital media and stuff like that. And with people being able to do so independently and do so freely and be able to explore and express themselves, I don't understand what everybody's problem is. If you don't want it, watch it. Don't watch it. Scroll past it. Don't click on it. Don't don't follow somebody. If you, they, you see they do all events, you don't like that, none of your business. Um, internet bullying and trolling, clapback culture, cancel culture, all of these things. People need to realize everything's a double-edged sword you have more access to information and more access to putting things out there to the world, but you're opening yourself up to other people's opinion. Now, I'm not saying you don't have the free speech to do that, but you just have to be prepared for that and decide how you want to respond. Conversely, if you see something you don't agree with, you don't have to respond to it. You can keep scrolling. Keep on. Bye. Block. Restrict. 
close. You don't have to give voice to everything or every opinion you have. And you constantly see that's how most of the arguments started. People have a negative comment to say about something they disagree with and don't expect people to say, excuse me, my platform, my rules, my page, my words. I don't need your opinion on here if you disagree. If you disagree with me, great. If you agree with me, have something nice to say or appropriate to say. And when it comes to appropriate, you even see things like um, how adults engage with children because there's no kind of filter and people lie. But also, some of these kids look older than me. Like, if I didn't have all this gray hair, I don't look like a 36-year-old man. Thank you, Mom, for the beautiful skin. Um, But keeping children safe from predators and things like that. They're saying sex trafficking has taken an uptick recently and people are sitting home by themselves i'm not condoning anything but i understand the logical process of it um but back to what i was talking about people found outlets and resources to not only explore their freedom and explore themselves but to make money off of it because as much as they are exploring there's so many people that cannot or will not that want that outlet to live through that person if they're willing to pay for that this shouldn't be a problem. As long as they're consenting adults, no one's getting hurt. And also, you're worried about trafficking and all this other. Decriminalize and legalize things so they can be regulated. It makes perfect sense. Because then once it's regulated, it can be taxed. Tax can go into the community and community build money. Communities need money to do things. Education, public works, community affairs. Um... Then you get into this whole movement of defund the police, which a lot of people um, misconstrue as some sort of abolish the police. It's not so much an abolishment. It's more of a restructuring and reallocation of funds. There's no reason that law enforcement should have the highest budget of any city department. Because if you put it elsewhere and reallocate funds correctly, you can create communities that limit the need for excessive law enforcement. If you put more into education and the arts and things like that, you will have more options to keep people engaged and off the streets and not not needing to be out and about hanging out in the hood. Arts programs, athletic programs, after school, extracurricular academic programs where kids and young adults have someplace to go and something to do to keep them out the streets. Now, cancel culture. I was taught at a very early age the power of minding your own business. It saves lives. Some celebrities, public officials, or just people in general need to learn to shut the fuck up. Yes? Because then you say something using your free speech to voice your opinion, and then you double down on things that could be offensive and misconstrued, and you try to, well, it's just my opinion, you don't have to listen. But what you understand is once you put it out into a platform like the internet and stuff like that, you are at the mercy of other people's opinions and feelings. Especially if you're a celebrity or a public figure with a grand platform, you have to be mindful of what you say. Now, I'm not ever going to tell anybody to watch their mouth or censor themselves. Just understand what comes along with you putting those words out to the world. Got it? Um... That's a lot I just went through. I'm going to play around and edit the episode for the podcast later.
but just in closing for this, um, 2020's been a lot. There's not going to be any new year, new me bullshit for 2021. We need to go, and I know this meme is going around, and I'm not going to quote the exact audio because I don't remember. We need to go to 2021 humble, prepared, and at peace with what we lived through in 2020. Um, that's the only way we're going to get through it. So, once this is uploaded, please leave likes, comments, anything about the video situation, because I may do this more often. Um, I'm also on TikTok, so I'll be doing some little videos on there, especially now that I have this lovely little setup. And no, this is not a throne or anything. This is actually an exercise bike with resistance bands, because I'm working on some fitnessy stuff to get myself back together, because I know I look all thick, but I'm not going to turn sideways, and you see how much my gut sticks out. But that's a project and commentary for another episode once I get that started. But anyway, and yes, I've been pedaling on this bike the whole time I've been recording. But this has been fun. Thank you. Um, it's been Thoughts of Peaches. Happy New Year. Hey, y'all. Welcome to an all-new episode of Thoughts of Peaches. This is Peaches. How you doing? So this is an episode I have been looking forward to doing for... A very long time. It's not exactly what I had originally planned on, given everything that happened with um, COVID-19 and such. But I think it's still going to be interesting nonetheless, and this will be, we'll say, a part one of my thoughts and theories about nightlife. This is going to be more of my introduction and my origin story up until now. I've seen, done, been involved it witnessed a great number of things, some of which I can't go into great detail about, but I'll give you some of the interesting parts that I can divulge and just some thoughts and theories. Um, the catalyst for me choosing to do this episode now is we recently saw that Governor, Trump, Governor Cuomo is planning on allowing indoor dining and services back into the hospitality establishments in New York City. And I currently live in New York, and with everything going on, people are looking for work, including myself. So this would be a great opportunity for us. And I've had a lot of time to reflect on how we did things, how we are going to have to do things moving on into the future. And I just want to kind of revisit some things and see what can be brought back, what can stay where it was, and what there is new going on that we are going to have to prepare for. So, get ready. Enjoy the show. Okay, let's start at the beginning. It's about 2002, 2003-ish, give or take. Um, I was leaving school for personal reasons, and that meant I lost one of my two jobs I had at the time. Um, I was a student employee, and I was working at... Express during the day, and my school job was my other job, and to help pay for school and stuff like that, but whatever. So I had to find another job. Never in a million years I think I would have ended up jumping into and then falling in love with the nightlife industry. I went to culinary school, so I had all these highfalutin goals of being a chef or like a GM or a maitre d' or something. Um, I had frequented this club as a patron before, and this was in Providence, Rhode Island, so there were still 18-plus clubs and stuff like that. So I used to go to this club called Camp on Friday nights, 
um, for their gay hip-hop night, which was a cool thing for me because I am a gay black male, and I was 18 or 19 around this time. So, um, a friend of mine was already working as a bar back, and he said, hey, I want you to come meet my boss. We need somebody to do the door. Now, the reason why this was suggested to me was I was a front desk manager as my student employee job when I was in college. So I ran the front desk of the dorm, letting people in and out, checking their IDs, organizing mail and sort and things like that. So he figured that was the perfect skill that was needed for someone doing the door at a club. So then it also helped that it was a gay hip hop night and he wanted somebody more representative of the community doing the door. The he being my iconic boss, Mr. Chris Harris, rest in peace, sir. Um, and that started my journey to nightlife because I got there for the interview and I was dressed for an interview like I learned at school, dressed to impress or whatever. And he was like, you're a little overdressed to be doing the door at a club there, son. I was like, well, I didn't know what to expect, so I just wanted to be prepared. Because um, are you comfortable working in a tank top? Sure, mind you. This was my first official nightclub job. I had been a dancer at a couple of clubs back then, but I'll get into more of that part of the situation later. So he was like, okay, because we need you to look like you're part of the party. He's like, honestly, that's fine, but it will still be done professionally and whatever. And that transition to him being so impressed with how I handled myself that I started to get more responsibility and be put in charge of things that you wouldn't expect the cashier to be in charge of or being able to tell people no at the door and stuff like that. And that sort of created the monster that I am now. And that's most of my origin story more to come so long story short i get the job i'm doing the door and little tiny things i started to tweak and change because i wasn't given very much direction other than how to use the cash register and stuff like that so i started to notice people who worked their head guest list and stuff like that and eventually people just kept coming up giving me random pieces of paper and anybody that has worked with me knows I'm very organized and detailed when I do my work, so that bothered me. So I said, hey, can I do something crazy? He's like, what? I was like, can I write down a full guest list before we open? He's like, sure, go ahead, do what you need to do. So first rule in my entire career that I instituted was everybody had to give me their guest list by 10 o'clock because the doors open at 10.30. I wasn't taking any names after 10.30. Kind of a diva bitch move, especially since I didn't know most of these people. But it set off a chain reaction to what would be the ascension of my position. Um, Providence had a lot of weird rules and regulations regarding how we had to do things because of how their liquor laws were. But I figured out most of them and made them work for me. But because we closed the door at a certain time and the club was still open and there was no reentry, I was done before the club was closed. So there were things I would find to do. And he comes up to me one day and is like, listen, I heard you used to be a dancer. I need you to do some extra work. I'm like, I'm not dancing. <laughs> That's not going to happen. He's like, no, 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 <laughs> no, no, not that. We had a hot body contest. And this was back when, again, things that I do miss from nightlife. But I'll get to this specific detail later. 
Anyway, I was like, yeah, I know the hot body contest, the guys, they do the little strippy thing, they win, they get a free drink. He's like, he's like yeah, I need somebody to sign up the people. I'm like, okay. I was using a clipboard and stuff at the front door already anyway, and I had paper. So I get the clipboard, I'm walking around, he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, you told me to take names. He's like, nobody's going to sign up for this contest with you walking around looking like the door guy. I'm like, okay. He's like, I asked you if you, are you comfortable doing this without your shirt on? I'm like, Sure. This is still when I had my bad bitch body. So, off goes my shirt. And I'm doing these sign-ups for this hot body contest. And I got a few people to sign up. There were people that always did it. But I was having a time getting new people to sign up. And I stopped this one guy who I'm still friends with to this day. And I knew he was a dancer at some of the other clubs. And I'm like, why is nobody signing up for the contest? He's like, I'll sign up for it, but I just have one question, because I think this may answer your other question. I'm like, okay. He's like, the guy who used to do the sign-ups used to enter the contest. Are you entering the contest? I'm like, no, I'm just doing this. I was like, okay, just let people know you're not entering, because from the looks of you, they're getting intimidated. That was also the first time anybody had ever told me I was intimidating at work. So you see a pattern as we go on with the rest of these stories at what my career began to develop and be. Um, this hot body contest was hosted by the legendary drag queen in Boston, Misery, who was also the first drag queen to give me a pair of lashes. Um, so yeah, my nightclub origin story, as far as the industry work goes, was at Camp Nightclub in Providence, Rhode Island, working for the legendary Chris Harris. Um, eventually I acquired a nickname at the door by given the current social climate. I am not going to use that exact terminology because I don't want to offend anybody. Um, just know it is rooted in the fact that when people came to my door, there were no games to be played. So in the next segment, I'm going to go into a little bit more detail about certain things I learned and miss about starting out in nightlife. So there wasn't much actual training in my start in nightlife. What happened was they had me train with the security team and bouncers because we had in-house security, as a lot of places did back then. And I learned all of that stuff and had to get my security license with the city of Providence and all of that. So this will begin where I start things that I miss about stuff that's kind of fallen off in recent times in nightlife. So when I started, one of the first things I was taught was we have to maintain the fantasy. Nightlife is a luxury environment. It's a fantastical environment. It's people's escape from real life. So we need to maintain that at all times. So being strict at the door, not necessarily being like rude or malicious, but making sure that we had control of the energy and flow of people coming in the room. Some places went overboard with this to the point of being like discriminatory or biased or racist and things like that. But that wasn't the MO um, I worked under, which is why I began to start to develop a little bit of a following of my own of people who liked when I was working because of how I treated them at the door. That leads to also the fact that at, this was the point when this was the age before promoters and social media and stuff like that. So people had um, almost a venue loyalty situation where they respected the venue and the people that worked at the venue and understood that when you got to the door, the door guy was the end-all be-all for that space. 
if the door guy didn't like you, you didn't respect the door guy's rules or whatever, that was the end of it. There was no well, call so-and-so, I know so-and-so. There was none of that. The door guy said no, it was no. And security handled you appropriately, depending on the door guy's instructions. And that wasn't, for a lot of us and a lot of people I knew that worked, that wasn't really an ego trip. That was, we set the tone for what's going on. And when I really started to do like the door, or when we started to do big parties to the guest list, this was a very clandestine moment for me because my boss told me if you ever go to New York go to Mr. Black and see how Rose runs the door he is talking about the legendary Rose Black who was mentioned in the iconic Scissor Sister song who recently um, passed away and I had the I had the luck and blessing to end up working with her later in life but I was told to model my door style after hers it wasn't anything about who anybody knew or anything like that it was very fair even keeled and direct so i developed that into how i handled the door some one of the names i used to go by that i can say was icy because people always remarked that i was never nasty i was never I was never unprovokedly nasty, let me be clear. I was never unprovokedly nasty, but I wasn't overly friendly. It was a very cold greeting, but I was pretty and I was funny. Because the moments when I did have to be nasty, it was a sight to see, whether it be with my words or if I actually had to physically handle somebody because of my size and just my general appearance. But there was a energy back then <laughs> that it was all part of the show those things happen people move on it was nothing crazy to write home about this was also the age before camera phones and all that became very prevalent so if something was going on people tended to mind their business for the most part because there was nothing, what, what was the benefit of standing there watching somebody get thrown out or anything like that or running to see what's going on if it wasn't a friend of yours? So people kept going about their day or just left and moved out of the way. Um, one of the other things I miss, and this is because of a shift in the economy and how the industry was structured, people spent money. People did not mind spending money when they went out. From even before they got to the club to even when they were in the club. People got dressed, people had outfits, people wore, it, it was a statement walking in the door to the club, the majority of people came dressed, they had a new outfit, it was the best they had in their closet for that week, Providence was a college town, so you had folks buying like the nice show, nice clothes, when I worked at the straight club, polo shirts, button down shirts, hard bottom shoes, when I worked at the gay clubs, it was about a look, you didn't just come in whatever. If you wore a sweatsuit, it was a nice coordinated sweatsuit, matching hat, matching sneakers. If you had, whether well, it was fashion girls, you had a look, you had a cute little bag or something. The drag queens, they came in looking stunning, beat for the gods. It was that the energy was different. People put more into going out than they have done recently. Because the economy was better, people were making money, had disposable income, and everything didn't cost you 7,000 arms and a leg. And mind you, this was before Uber and Lyft as well, so people were carpooling or taking ca like legit cabs to the club. 
And there was more of a community element to it because people were more connected because they had to be. It wasn't like today where you pick up your phone and you could see OnlyFans or Twitter or already. If you wanted to see boys, you had to go out. Their pictures weren't all over the internet. The internet wasn't set up for that at that point unless you were like a big name porn star working for a studio. The best looking men would have been in the club. You had to go to the club to meet somebody because all of the apps like Grindr and stuff like that weren't out. And everything else was desktop based. I think the two primary ones everybody was using were, no, three. It was Adam for Adam, Manhunt, and Black Gay Chat. But those were on your desktop computer and you can't walk around with that in your pocket. So you had to go out. Went out, talked to somebody, got their actual phone number. And you would call it or text them and go on a date or go home with them or whatever. And it was just a more involved experience. Also, people partied. You didn't have a bunch of people standing around looking at the wall. You didn't have people super clicked up just watching people. If you were clicked up, you were clicked up and you were dancing with your click. The dance floor was full. The music was going. The drinks were flowing. And people had a good time. People, (laughs) you want to talk about, they call it the let out. Because you didn't have any Instagram or anything to take pictures and stuff like that with your phone. People had disposable cameras. Or if you were lucky and had a little bit of coin, you had a digital camera. You were in the parking lot taking pictures. Or you had the photographers in the clubs taking pictures. And you would get their little makeshift business cards to their website where they would post them or um, email them and tell them the pictures you wanted. It was so much more going on. There was so much more to do because in order to truly socialize, you had to go out. And this is coming from probably one of the most antisocial people in creation. I didn't go out a lot, but when I did, I went out. There were all these clubs. There was um, Pulse, Platforms, Tricks, Mirabar, The Complex. All these places and provinces were very close together. So you could bar hop or whatever. And New York was the same way when you had people going out in like the West Village and Chelsea before Hell's Kitchen became the thing or even for the straight folks in Meatpacking District. And it was the height of nightlife. It was you had to be dressed to go out. Dress codes were strict. Doors were strict. Bottle service wasn't as accessible as it is now. So the only people doing bottle service were folks that had money, money. Like celebrities and models and things. Everybody else buying drinks at the bar. New York, you had clubs like Splash where bartenders were making money hand over fist, counting gallon pickle buckets of money at night. It was a whole different energy and experience. And then it came. Social media. So... The beginnings of social media and nightlife were very interesting because this was the age of Facebook and MySpace, but they didn't really have like the messenger function and stuff like that. So you still had to like get people's phone number to call and text them and you would post pictures and stuff or little comments on MySpace or Facebook. Um, Facebook was for the younger crowd, quote unquote, because it was only for college students. MySpace was a little bit open for more open format. But what ended up happening was you started to see a shift. 
because then people didn't have to go out to interact with each other as directly when social media came out. You could communicate a post or share things across the computer. Mind you, all this was limited to computers at this point. So if you had a picture of something, you had to have a digital camera or get it on a CD and whatever, scan it into the computer and things like that. So it was a little bit of a slower transition. So people were still going out and having a good time, but you saw a lot more digital cameras showing up in the clubs and stuff like that, or disposable cameras and people getting that CD made at Walgreens after they get the pictures developed, and you're seeing people sharing their experience within what is normally a so-called sacred place, sort of, and you're seeing them on the internet that not everybody had direct access to as much as they do now, but you start to see a shift, and then people start using the internet as a tool in nightlife to maintain email lists and guest lists and stuff like that, or have people sign up for your mailing list so you can tell them what events and stuff are going on. And honestly, that was amazing. You didn't have to rely on the printing costs of... It was it was enough money to have a graphic designer design a flyer for you, but now you had an option where you no longer had to print out five to 7,000 flyers and pay somebody to go out flyering cars and stuff like that. You could just press a button and it goes out to thousands of people, which obviously took a job away from somebody because people used to get paid to go out and flyer cars and stuff like that, and it was an engagement thing. Sometimes it was shady because you'd send people to fly your cars that were other venues, but whatever, that was part of the game. But when that email, those email lists and constant contacts and stuff came about, it changed so many things because you could communicate with so many more people that may not go out every week. So they don't see you have a themed event coming or something like that, or <clears throat> you get people from across the country that may have visited and vacation there ever so often. They didn't know to come, what time of year to come back for what party. And then you start to build a thing off of that. Then I notice a shift when I know my guest list started getting longer. I'm trying to figure out why. So I go to my boss. I'm like, what is this? He was like, oh, we had people RSVP. And I was like, RSVP for what? To cut the line to get the bodies in here so they drink at the bar. And I'm like, oh, okay. So then you start to see places have to split their line from general admission to RSVP. The VIP was still its whole separate situation because it still held value to be a VIP at a club. That means you don't pay the cover and you don't wait in line. You get escorted to a table and you get a da-da-da-da-da. RSVP at the most was you got free or reduced admission depending on what time you came in. It was a separate line for you that moved faster, etc. and so forth. But that's when you started to see the transition of people starting to feel entitled, where they're like, well, I'm on the list. I'm like, you just said you were coming. Who do you actually know? I don't know. I just replied to an email. Okay, girl. Then you start to see things like um, discount codes and passwords being sent to math. Those are things that have been used in nightlife for time and memorial, but now you're seeing so many people, more people having access to them. And that was the thing. Nightlife was about access, luxury. Not everybody was supposed to be able to get in or to have. That was the part that made it interesting and special because not everybody had an outfit to wear. Not everybody had money to buy drinks and pay a cover. 
not everybody knew somebody that worked there to be able to cut the line or get a bottle or whatever and what have you. That made it special and made it something people look forward to. People were clamoring, trying to get in at 17, 16, and stuff like that. I would I celebrated my 17th birthday in a club without an ID because me and my friends pulled a stunt. This is the the, the energy was so different, and people were weighing people were willing to pay twenty, thirty, forty. $50 to get into clubs just on general admission to go buy drinks at the bar because that was a place to be. That was where you could meet people. That was where you party. That's where you heard the latest music. And you were turned on to songs that you wouldn't hear anywhere else. You would hear a, you would hear a version of a song that you never heard anywhere before because DJs would always get music before people or you would learn the latest dance move. I remember, um, I'll talk about this when I do the drag episode, but when I started doing drag, me and the group I was with, we would do Desi Child numbers. We got known for doing the choreography from Lose My Breath for the music video. This was also back when they had um, that MTV show making the video. So people were in the club battling each other with these dances from these videos and it was it was everything. You're watching folks go off, and you slowly start to see this weirdness happen. For me, it was when people started to say, well, I'm on the list, and how my brain was programmed, the list is a guest list. You know somebody that works here. I know everybody that is normally on the list and knows somebody, or I would have been told who you are. Then I look, and they hand me the list, and it's 10 pages long of all these random people. And they think because they're on this RSVP list, that grants them some special privileges. And I was like, no. Then you start to see a shift in people getting dressed. They're coming to the club. And it's not so much a look. It's like casual. Like, oh, I'm just going to hang out with some friends. We're going to go to the movies and have coffee or something. It wasn't like that. Oh, girl, yes, you turned it for. Something, something started to slow people down. Then you started to notice. Phones got more sophisticated, so then people had camera phones, and when they're in the club, they're too busy taking pictures instead of enjoying the experience. Luckily, this was before people had good reception, so when you went to certain parts of the club, you had no reception, so you had to still be involved and engage. Um, one thing I do not miss is cleaning ashtrays at the night. I am... So blessed to have lived through and experienced the banning of cigarette smoking in almost every nightlife establishment in the Northeast because you would be amazed how many shirts I have cigarette burns in. And again, as things progressed and changed, you start to see a lot of positives and negatives. And that was probably one of the ones we got most pushback from. And a lot of places actually lost revenue because a lot of places would sell cigarettes. But being in my position, I was happy people weren't smoking. I don't have to, I don't smoke. So I don't have to go home smelling like a dirty ashtray every night. Um so in the next segment, I'm gonna give you a couple of the more interesting situations that have given me my affinity for nightlife. And I will try my best not to spill anyone's tea or name or anything. It'll be very circumstantial, very alleged type tea. So when I started working in nightlife, my only real point of reference 
for what I was to expect were from like TV and movies like Boogie Nights and 54 and stuff like that. And then, like, various times you would see TV shows that had, like, stuff taking place in a club. Like, I remember very vividly The Bronze from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Natalie's from New York Undercover, um, Quake and P3 from Charmed, and things like that. And my experience failed not to disappoint me. I hope I said that right. Um... In the 80s, it was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. In the 90s, it was fashion and glamour. I was in nightlife in the 2000s when it was the age of some sort of neo-urban opulence. It was the age of Von Dutch hats, affliction tees, um, rappers and gold chains pouring champagne and stuff on people, um, boy bands and all of that. And a lot of my experiences were very indicative of that era. Um, there was a lot of, it was a very sexually charged environment. If you, <laughs> you would have to be there to know some more of the details of that. I have had all kinds of interesting interactions with adult film stars, dancers that worked at clubs. Um, one of my favorite Stories is the larger club that I ended up working at. Um, at the time, it was called Envy at the Strand. And it was also shared its space with um, a live music venue operation called Lupo's. And at one point, they were doing Chippendales <laughs> mail review shows on Sundays before we opened for the gay night at the club. And occasionally, I would work in drag. And it was so funny when the nights I would have to work in drag and come for the transition out between the Chippendale shows because these women thought I was a real girl and you couldn't tell me nothing. And I didn't tell them otherwise, although I did avoid talking because I always sound like this and this is not necessarily um, the most feminine or womanly voice. But I looked the part. Um, the guys from Chippendales are really cool. One of them, ironically enough, worked as a shop boy and go-go dancer for the club, and he ended up coming to be the captain of one of the Chippendales troops out of Boston. So that was a cool little thing. Um, I got to work with the likes of Jeannie Tracy from the Weather Girls. That was a beautiful, amazing experience. Um, Anthony Lamont... Um, Kevin Aviance, Junior Vasquez, Hex Hector, DJ Kiyoki, um, legendary DJ from the club kids scene and the um, era of Party Monster. Rest in peace, Michael Alec, who recently passed as well. Um, legend in nightlife, for good or bad, of what his actions were. Um, I had a lot of interesting experiences. Like I said, a lot of times then places had house security teams rather than security companies. So we operated as like a mini mob for the most part. If you pissed off one of us, you pissed off all of us. And it was even more so when I worked at straight venues because usually I would be the only openly gay member on a security team. And this was before cancel culture and all of that, so there's pretty off-color interesting jokes to say. 
that I heard, and at one point I got called the Great Equalizer because <clears throat> one of the guys was talking about some girl he did this, that, and the other with in the club. And I mentioned how I went home with some guy the other day. And he said, we don't want to hear about that, da-da-da-da-da. Yada, yada, yada. He came out of his mouth and said everything except for the F word, which is why he still had his teeth. But I said, let me let me break this down. If I'm going to be working here with y'all and I have to listen to y'all ugly boogie nasties, y'all going to listen to mine. If not, we can just take all that conversation out of the back room. Again, I have been on a path of destruction since I started. And that that was one of the things it was i've always been in situations where i've asserted my dominance and it wasn't like an ego thing it was just something i had to do to advance my position and eventually i became vip coordinator instant assistant head of security whatever you want to call it for those particular nights and then head of security um and vip relations for the gay night and i got to put even more rules in place i got to build my own staff and family, and the funnier thing was, I also got say, and what guys from the other nights could work on the gay nights when we needed extra staff for the holidays and stuff, so people were even more so dancing around their tiptoes for me, and I can honestly say that was probably the high point of my life and career to be in my early 20s, having keys to a multi-million dollar nightclub, having my own staff and my own team and my name mean something even though it wasn't on any flyer, any events. My name wasn't on nothing. I didn't want my name on nothing. <clears throat> I literally wanted to come in, do my job, and go home. But people knew who I was when they walked through that door. That is the era I come from. A lot of times you go places now, you walk to the door. You may be friends with the cashier, but you don't know them. You don't know their procedures you just know they're going to take your money and send you aside people knew me people like even if they weren't coming in stop by the club to say hi bring me food and things like that there was a respect and a reverence when you worked in nightlife back then that you don't necessarily see now because revisiting this the advent of social media changed the game completely about how people engage and interact and stuff like that people could send it started off with you being able to get your emails massively exposed and being able to check all these emails or send direct messages through these social media platforms. Or then, when Yelp came about, people could leave reviews for things. Oh, that was terrible. So bad. People would have a bad experience, get turned away at the door for... By nightlife standards, a legitimate reason, you're not dressed the right way, you were rude to the door guy, you were too drunk, and they go and bash the venue, and we couldn't do anything, really, because it would just make us look bad trying to go and defend ourselves, and it started to strip away the power from the venue. And as these social media outlets came with this mass information, you start to see people see they have all these different options, so then you're introducing the age of the promoters came about. These are people that were normally popular and super social in whatever scene they were in and had a following that could get people to come to clubs and parties with them. And it started out with just people that would bring people and have a table and buy a bottle and da-da-da-da-da. 
Those were the socialite kind of promoter people. You give them a table. It's like, oh, I got 10 of my friends coming in, blah, 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 to fill up the space, spend more money, because you notice people were trailing off to other places as other places popped up, or because other places had more digital access to get to people. So then the promoters start becoming the popularity and the function and the backing behind nightlife instead of the venues, then you start to see a huge change come about that really, really did change the game completely. So I started working in nightlife during a very specific time period. And as time shifted and I moved back down to the tri-state area in New York and New Jersey, we turn into an arena in the age of the promoter. Um, and it transitioned from like just somebody who hosted a table and was there to be seen to the host of the party, the person who brought the party with them, the person who filled up the spaces. And it wasn't an unfamiliar concept to have people to do that, but with the internet on the rise and people getting more exposure to information and options, um, venues needed to find some way to get bodies in the door because the traditional ways weren't working anymore. So they would link up with promoters to start to build these followings and have them go out and socialize and build up their clientele to bring their entire clientele, the social circle and contact list to a venue. And when I started working in um, nightlife in this particular era, I noticed something different. So if you have three different lists, you have the staff guest list, which is friends and family of the staff, whatever, most of the time, most places would give um, staff members two comps if they were charging a cover charge for the night. You had the house guest list. Those are VIPs, people who we know spent money. Um, any performers or any entertainers that were in the area and stuff like that, or people who did bottle service. Then you had the promoter's guest list. And what this was, was all the people that contacted the promoter saying they were coming, da-da-da-da-da, because a lot of places paid the promoter by the number of people they had come in under their name. So if you had one lead promoter, everything would be under his name, and he would have, like, sub-promoters that would book tables and stuff like that that work for him. They would bring people all under him, and he would pay them accordingly. Or there would be events where you have multiple promoters, multiple people's names on the flyer and stuff like that, and you'd have a list for each individual. And what you started to notice was the promoter and RSVP list got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And the power to operate all these venues then left the, from the hands of the venue into the hands of promoter. Venues became reliant on promoters to fill their spaces. And with someone like me, I always worked for the venue directly for the most part. When I was working in Providence, I worked for Chris Harris, but I was on the payroll for the venue. There were certain things that I got him directly to pay me to do. There were other things I did in-house that were my job on the books for the venue. So I was used to working directly for venues and knowing how to do venue relations. Um... But the shift came when I was also used to being the final say for everything. You came to my door. If I said no, the answer was no. You moved out of line and went about your day. 
this new era. It was like, well, I know the promoter. So. And because things were so tumultuous about getting people in the door, a lot of times bad behavior was rewarded and people had senses of entitlement where they would, I know so-and-so, go get so-and-so and hold up the line till you got whoever their friend was and their friend walked them in. Oh, they're with me. It's fine. Da -da -da -da. Give them a drink ticket. Whoop-de-whoop-de-whoop. And I'm sitting at the door rolling my eyes. That was my decision to shift into management, though, because at the end of the day, once you're management, that's it. You're the bee's knees and the um, children's lunch, as um, my girl from TikTok, Hershey Licker, would say. Um, and I never shot to be the end-all, be-all manager. I just happened into those situations. And all of those situations, I rose to the occasion. But... It's very interesting when you think about the hybridization between... I've worked at LGBTQIA plus venues. I have worked at neutral mainstream establishments. I've worked at full-on sports bars, hip-hop, reggae parties. on, And the different dynamics that you end up dealing with and the different ways you have to move through those specific dynamics and demographics is very specific. So when I worked at sports bars, I had to be a lot more sociable and approachable because people would have questions, want to change the TV channels and stuff like that. When I worked at gay bars, well, that's mostly what people see of me now. That's the most real of my real self I can be from what I wear to how I dress and things like that. Working at the straight hip-hop and reggae parties was very interesting because I could push the limit to what I looked like, but my demeanor had to be a lot harder because people assimilate the behavior they see. So when you see, and again, I said this is the height of when social media was getting up there, when they see um, rappers and performers and actors are popping bottles at the club and the champagne popping and da-da-da-da-da, Everybody wants to live that life, whether they can or they cannot. And being the person who works at the venue, you have to keep that in check. Just like I said, the first thing I was told to do was you have to maintain the fantasy. This is where I learned you have to manage the fantasy. Because if you give people a rope, they'll hang themselves and you at the same time. So yes, you want people to have a good time, come in, pop your bottles, drink, dance with somebody, whatever, but you want to make sure everybody's safe and you're protecting your investment. You have dealing with things from fights where people can break glasses and bottles, so you have credit card scammers running up thousands of dollars on bottle service on a credit card to some 70-year-old woman who lives in the Upper East Side and left her house in three months, and you have to figure out how to manage and navigate all of this along with Everything else that comes with nightlife, the potential drug use, illegal activities, um, safety concerns for people going home with other people with or without consent, and all of that piled on. Then you add the digital age of credit card scammers and ID thieves and who's taking pictures of who on social media and making sure you don't have tabloids running up on people minding their business or making these deals for all these reality shows and stuff like that. There's one time where there was a reality show featuring um, a former Disney star, and they wanted to film in the club. 
they wanted to do bottle service, but because of my bottle service girl's uniforms, which was a corset and hot pants, they said because of the network, they can't show that. So I ended up having to have my arm in TV. So like, please don't show my face. I don't like taking pictures. I don't like being in videos and stuff like that. But then you start to see the overlap between the real world and nightlife because of social media. Too many pictures and photographers and things getting out. This is the age of when the Chris Brown, Rihanna era happened and that famous fight and incident that happened in a nightclub in New York um, with Chris Brown that you start to see where things really started to shift. A world that was normally cloaked dagger and shadows. Now it's people walking through with flashlights showing all the secrets. Nothing is sacred anymore. Because this is getting to the point where everybody has a miniature camera in their pocket at all times. So they're taking pictures, documenting everything from the world. Where previously, nightlife was an age of, you have to be there to see it. Not, oh, I'm going to take your picture of you fucked up and drunk. So we can talk about it tomorrow where I can post it on social media to show everybody. So a lot of the mystique was lost there. Then the access to... Things you used to only be able to get when you went out. The newest music, you only heard it when you went to the club back then. Way back when, I mean. Then you start to see Apple with iTunes and all these digital streaming services stuff start to pop up where you can get music directly on a device. Or... You used to have to go out to see gorgeous men and women dancing for your entertainment, go-go dancers or strippers, or even like sexy bartenders making your drinks. You start to see people posting pictures of their staff or whatever being more accessible to people through their phones and the internet. So a lot of that allure and things people are not with, people are starting to realize, I don't have to go out for that. Or when all these apps started developing for the gays, especially when things like Grindr came out, I don't have to leave my house to get somebody to come over and do whatever. Bet I'm not going out or they go out to the club just so they have a more targeted audience. They're not, people weren't dancing like they used to the dance floors are empty till people get enough liquor in their system. Or people just stop going out because they start talking to somebody and inviting them over. You skip the middleman and go into the club and you save yourself some money. That's the mentality that started to take over. Or people just get bored seeing the same people over and over and over again. And the internet gave them access to a multitude of other people without leaving their home. So then you start to see all these other things pop up. Multiple, multiple, multiple promoters and people fighting over who's on whose list and people arguing at the door. And the luxury started to disappear from nightlife. People complaining about having to pay a cover. What am I getting for this money? Your drinks are too expensive. Or when you try to say your place has a dress code because it's a nice, classy establishment, people don't want it. Well, I got to get dressed up to come give you my money. That was the, That was unheard of before. And this was the point when, as I mentioned, clandestine relationships, I got to work with the legendary Rose Black, who was the template I was given to follow. And we're sitting there talking about these things. She's like, this is not how it used to be. I was like, yes, girl, I know. 
and we would have these conversations all the time and talking about it, even talking to my mother about how it was when she when she used to go out. She would come to some of the clubs I work at, and my mother still got dressed to go out when she would come. And she would look around, she was like, Oh, this is sad. Now, maybe that's just age showing in her case, but for me, I'm just watching the industry aspect of it. Because the world of the fantasy of going out and being seen and da-da-da-da was slowly being sucked into our phones and put in the palm of our hands so that it, it's a scramble to try to figure out how to meet that need when there's competition that can produce so much more than we can, even though it's not of the same quality of what we can. So as the social media age and the age of promoters came about, um, a lot of places in nightlife had to get creative and also evolve to the times where you were using all kinds of different marketing methods to get people in the door, let people know you were still there. Or even um, planning your timing out and adjusting your scheduling to like optimize things. So some places that were open seven days a week only opened on the weekends to kind of consolidate their crowd and their audience. They knew they had a loyal audience, and if you give them less time to come in, they'll fill the place up. Or places piggybacking their hours of operation off of a nearby venue. So if you know you have a really strong happy hour, but you're not really good at the nightlife stuff, and another place is a good nightlife place, but not good with the happy hour stuff, you may kind of cross-promote either directly or indirectly to kind of share the wealth so places stay open. Or the even more amazing one was um, a lot of legendary places that have been around for years and years and years and years adapted to the social media age really well, um, building up years and some decades worth of clientele lists from like birthday parties or things that happened and you digitize it so that you can send out messages to people already loyal to you and they're capable of sharing it with their friends and their people about all the different events you do and then making sure you keep up with your graphics work so it's optimized to be used in a digital mean so you're not reliant on just the paper handouts and hoping word of mouth works, you have direct access to every single person that comes to your venue. And that benefited a lot of people. But then you start to see this weird thing. And I'm going to touch on what I'll call the um, fall of an empire when it comes to gay nightlife. Um, Specifically gay nightlife, because that's where that's what took my heart. That was my first love in this industry was the gay scene because I could not only be open out and who I wanted to be, but I saw the direct result of me using every skill I have professionally for my community, for the community that embraced me so openly when I fell into it. Um when I started working in New York, it wasn't directly into nightclubs. I'll be perfectly honest. I was working at a comedy club, but I was a frequent person who went out to places with friends who introduced me to people that I still know to this day and stuff like that. And we went to all the places in the West Village and Chelsea and stuff like that. But then the neighborhood started to change. It became 
gentrified and very straight washed because the gays had built up culture in these places through nightlife and art and things like that and made it more appealing to other people because it was like having boiled chicken from the Midwest. You came and then there's some seasoning, there was some spice, there was some zest. But then once the enamel wore off, you want to change everything up. There was a bar in the West Village by the PAV train station called Chi-Chi's. And it was right there. All the girls from Jersey used to come up. It was mostly black and Latino. And it was between the main part of Christopher Street and the Christopher Street part of Chelsea Pier, which has iconic relevance to the LGBT community, specifically the LGBT community of color. And as the neighborhood started gentrify, you started to see more complaints of people complaining about the noise and things going on at Chi-Chi's and stuff like that. And it was hard for them. Then they wanted to make the pier more family-friendly, and the pier used to be on 24 hours, and the girls who were too young to get in the clubs would hang out at the pier, and it was like a safe space for them or whatever, but the people moving in, spending the money, air quotes, on the neighborhood, driving up the property rates and property value in the area. They had the ear of the people in charge, so they put a curfew on the pier, and that pushed all of those people into the streets. And yes, they may not have been able to get into the clubs, but they hang out and lingered around them because they had nothing else to do. So then you make things problematic for the venues because you have displaced. It's it's literally like an ecosystem. You would displace those people, and Chi-Chi just couldn't keep up with the constant legal battles. So they had the clothes, and you lose so many venues as that shifts. And then you start to see places start to move up into the meatpacking district in Chelsea. So you have, it was, Chelsea was the spot. You went to all the little bars for happy hour. We had the drink specials, like nine or 10 o'clock. Then everybody went to Splash because it was two floors, the biggest place, biggest dance for a legendary iconic place that's been around forever to dance the night away. Then after that, you went to Cafeteria or Florent or Grace Papaya, something to get you some greasy food or the dollar pizza place to get you something to eat and go home. And you did that whole cycle Friday night, Saturday night, maybe Sunday night, and you recovered on Monday. And that was the routine. If you worked at nightlife, you went to cafeterias like five, six in the morning when all the drunk customers leaving you in there, you talking to the staff was an industry thing. And we lost so much of that as neighborhoods started to change because that same gentrification that happened in the West Village started to happen in Chelsea. And you start to see people move in there. They're spending money and the neighborhood's a mess. And there's too many bars and clubs and noise complaints. And people don't realize when you call those complaints, you are costing people money. You are digging in people's pockets, making this an issue. And most cities around the country, let alone New York alone, when you do that, they put quality of living for the residents over the operation of a business. And a lot of the people who move into these areas don't understand it's predatory on the ecosystem because New York is called the city that never sleeps for a reason. Nightlife is so ingrained into what New York is, and you're just 
throwing it all off. It's like deforestation in a sense. All the stuff that you liked about some of these neighborhoods, some of this place, some of the energy gives off, you're slowly destroying it as you get complacent in what you're doing or your needs change. So you feel that you need to force the environment around you to change. So then venues had to change how they operate. Places were had to be spread out. Then once they're spread out and places started to go into like the warehouses of the meatpacking district or closer to the west side where there weren't any residents, people started to turn those into residential spaces because they wanted to be fancy and have these lofts and things. And then places that didn't have an issue with the community boards and stuff like that now have those issues because you decide you want this multi-floor apartment in a warehouse across the street from a nightclub that's some blasting techno music for 15 to 20 years. All of a sudden now you can't sleep because you have grad school in the morning and you throw everything off and People don't realize how expensive that gets to be compared to the money that is made there legitimately. And it becomes a hassle. And that's why so many places have either closed or landlords have jacked up rent to compensate for cost of legal fees and stuff like that. And it becomes a mess. So then everything moved to, shifted to a different neighborhood and stuff like that. And then you move into places like Hell's Kitchen, for example. It's already full because Broadway and stuff like this. It's already bars and nightclubs. So you're displacing so many more people and pushing them into an area that's already oversaturated. And now it's a constant battle within the neighborhood. And the neighbors may get their way, but then the industry that helped built, build a lot of the city and give the city a lot of its character gets flipped over on its side. Then you have... Not enough venues for the people that are here. So you have no place to go for who you want to be with and who you want to hang out with. And it's hard, especially when you get into like minorities within the minority. There weren't a lot of venues that did stuff for the blacks and the Latinos. So the less venues we have, the less opportunities there are. And there's an animosity that gets built or there's a tokenization or fetishization that happens that makes a lot of venues look disingenuous in their operation because the venues that were black and Latino more often than not did not have the same financial backing as other venues. They were making do, but then all this other mess put the hardship. They were like, well, we can't do this. You go to other venues, other venues, again, perception through popular culture, they hear hip hop or Latino or urban, which is the coin term they use to try to get politically correct. And they turn their nose up at it or limit it to one day a week and tell the DJs you can only play this music, this music, and this music, only play this on certain nights and stuff like that. And a lot of venues were like that. They would monetize it when they can, but otherwise they wouldn't keep their core demographic so they didn't fuck up their long-term money. And then you start to see more and more of this happening or you start to see venues go from big mega clubs and shrinking down to the size and space that's available so they cannot accommodate everybody like they used to. So the more venues have to open up and becomes a strain and a stretch and a hindrance on the true progress of what could have been if human beings didn't do what they always do. You go in places and you mess stuff up. Okay, that last section was a bit ranty, but I'm going to go back to something I mentioned earlier about one of the things I loved about nightlife was how people came out and they had a look. It was 
not the look, it was a look. They were dressed or they had some sort of concept of something going on that you saw and was like, damn. And that was a direct prerequisite to what has now become influencer culture on social media. When I started in nightlife, you used to have to go out to be seen or to see what was in style, what was on trend, what people were wearing, how they were wearing it, hairstyles, hair colors, shoes, sneakers, bags, everything else. And then when the phones and cameras came out, you started seeing people taking pictures of people out on social media of what they are wearing and stuff like that. Then you see that evolve into people just randomly taking pictures, wearing stuff, and saying the name of the label and being able to transition that. So they pulled it. You didn't have to go out to see that anymore. People didn't have to be out to show it. And that took away a lot of the energy that nightlife had because people weren't going out anymore because they didn't have to. Or people weren't trying anymore because they knew I can edit a picture or nobody's going to be here and da 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 and even more so, the roles reversed. People were no longer okay with... And I say okay as a relative term. Don't judge me for this. But at one point, promoters were okay with getting a couple of comp... Drink to, a couple of comp emissions and a bottle to be there to bring people in. Because they could go out and be part of that culture and it was part of the energy. Now they have booking fees and they want bar percentages and stuff like that because it's they've been come so integral into the landscape and the ecosystem that is nightlife because people are no longer loyal to a specific venue. They're loyal to the person hosting at that venue. So we have to bend and flex to accommodate people that have a vested interest in themselves and their intentions and not necessarily your venue. You are a space for them to occupy to make money and they'll do whatever they need to do to get their way one way or the other. And you're left to try to make it happen just so you can make your money on the back end of the deal. That creates um, this weird thing because it makes it even harder for your staff too because, again, that entitlement I mentioned earlier, people think because they know a promoter or they're on a promoter's list, they can come and run amok and do whatever they want. And when you try to enforce that, it creates a friction and becomes problematic. I'm a different kind of manager in the sense that anyone that has worked with me knows I'm very hands-on and involved in things. My staff is meant to be the heroes. I am meant to be the villain. No is my favorite word. The promoter's job is to get you in the door, treat you nice, make sure you have a good time. My staff's job is to provide you great service. I'm the bad guy. When something happens, I need to be the one that can come up and say no, and they can do the recovery and redeem it if that is an option. But it becomes in conflict when there are certain things I have to do in the interest of a venue and a promoter is only acting in the interest of themselves, their pocket, and their intentions. And you can find it. You might swear with me. I'm not the one. Once I say no, the answer is no. My reason for saying no can be discussed at a later time. But in that moment, I said no for a reason. My job is to maintain order so that people can have a good time. I'm not against having people have a good time, but there's a certain sequence has to go about and I learned that 
from doing this from when I started. Before, it was a promoter's name with a list 7,000 miles long or people just signing up to some clickable link on the internet and putting their name on a list. I had to manage people. I had to know people. I had to see who was who, what was what, up from down, left from right. And you see it even when you see people handling how they do the door some places. just like, um, what are you doing? Are you not paying attention to who these people are? It, it's, it's just a mindfuck to me, which is part of the reason I don't go out that often now. Because I'm just confused at what everything has turned into. And God, I sound like an old, I sound like an old person complaining about the golden days, but I am an old person complaining about the golden days. There was more order and structure to things, and I miss that a lot. Now, some of the things that came about in nightlife with that transition that I do like are I do like using social media as a promotion, marketing, and managing tool for nightlife. I became very proficient in it as far as it came to answering messages, collecting data, keeping lists of stuff, and doing some um, promotional work. I've learned how to use a couple of different things and make my own little quick flyers when I can't get a hold of a graphic designer and stuff like that, or managing your calendar and sending out emails and information and stuff like that to people, and uh, monitoring engagement and stuff like that. I'm also able to look at other venues and compare my competition and stuff like that. I don't have a 100% of an issue with a lot of the influence and promoter culture that has come about. Obviously, with the advent of information technology, it is better to use whatever you can to get people in the door and get them um, spending money in your venue. But I miss the respect people had for a venue and like following instructions and rules when they come to a line and stuff like that. And also promoters working with the venues and not just for themselves. You get so much further, and I learned this working with um, Chris Harris for all those years, you get so much further working in a partnership capacity as far as how you're working with a venue than just coming in for your night and doing that because then you're incorporating it. They'll invest more um, sweat equity, quote-unquote, into what you're doing because they feel like they're part of what you're doing and you're part of what they're doing and you respect the limits, boundaries of what the venue has to offer. Um, Another thing that I found interesting, and it's a double-edged sword that a lot of venues switched over to security companies rather than in-house security because of a lot of different issues that came about with who they were hiring and how they were hiring. So with security companies, people are trained, licensed, and the security company has them insured and bonded for any sort of um, issue that may come up dealing with an incident, such things like that. But there's also a personal disconnect a lot of times, and I've seen it more so with um, the LGBT market because there's not a lot of security companies that specialize specifically in the needs of the community and understanding how to interact and engage with um, people coming in because the community element is a big deal as opposed to a lot of mainstream venues, whether they be um, full mainstream nightlife venues, um, urban or Latino venues, or culturally specific spaces where you just have people coming in. People come to gay bars and gay lounges and lesbian bars and lounges and LGBT spaces for a feeling of safety and community and having a revolving door or a rotation 
of people working there in security, much less any capacity, kind of takes away from that experience that should and is ingrained into LGBT nightlife. But any venue in general, having different people there all the time rotated out for scheduling purposes does not allow them to build a rapport with your clientele and make that whole experience as much of an experience as it should be or could be like it used to be. When people knew the door guy, obviously there were issues with that back then with people doing shady things and make extra coins on the side or like weird stuff going on at the door. But you took the good with the bad under the circumstances. And you don't see a lot of that nowadays. And you see people coming in there for with the this is just my job, I don't care mentality. But if you're responsible for people's safety and security, you have to be there to do that work and make sure you're doing that work in the way that the venue needs you to do so. Now to touch on something a little spicy <clears throat> when it comes to um, entertainment and visuals and things like that. Now, I remember when you used to have to go and people would be salivating and waiting for the dancers to come out and go on stage in the outfits and stuff like that. I used to be one of them. Um, and that was because that's the only access you had unless you were going to the store and buying like porno magazines, VHSs, and then DVDs. <clears throat> to see that, your um, visual simulation was limited to that or, like, after 11 o'clock on Cinemax or HBO for those little shows that everybody used to watch. Yes, I'm showing my age. But then you start to see on social media popping up where their people are sharing their pictures online and they're more accessible. Or a lot of the clubs will have pictures from the parties and you see the dancers on there. Then you have individual bios on certain dancers um, when you work for certain types of clubs. I worked at an all-male strip club and we had a page that just had... We did a photo shoot with all the dancers in our little shower room so people could see who was available for the dancers at any given time. And then people started doing that independently. So you pull a major element out of nightlife and people can access that independently without having to get dressed and spend the money to go out. So fast forward to now between let, let's go through the sequence. Tumblr and Twitter, Reddit. Generally, the PG-13, slightly risque stuff they post on Instagram. Now you have OnlyFans where you can see it all. Bottom, top, up, down, left, right, boy, girl, she, he, they, trans, ninja, anything you want to see, the internet has it. In the palm of your hand on your phone, you don't have to get out your bed. You don't have to get dressed. You barely have to spend any additional money outside of what you're paying for your phone and internet service and pray that you have enough memory on your phone to watch it. So the inclination for people to go out for that purpose is no longer there. So you're taking a whole fraction of the nightlife atmosphere away because people no longer have to go to nightclubs, strip clubs, private parties, and things like that. See that they have it in the palm of their hand. And conversely, those who still go out are there to see the people who are still working. We still have to offer that element for the people who want to see it, but those people have to work that much harder and make that much less money. I know dancers back when I was in my prime, so to speak, making 
thousands of dollars, male and female, thousands of dollars a night because you they were gods and goddesses. People came out to see them because they couldn't see them anywhere else. There wasn't this whole whole other ethereal realm where you could like pick and choose. You saw who was there and you were grateful. Now you see dancers using it as a marketing thing to get bookings at other places or to promote their um, own digital content to make their money consistently there and not making anywhere near the money. Mind you, I'll be very honest. At the moments when I was a dancer, mind you, there's an age situation, but that's neither here nor there. It was a time and place situation. That was what was going on back then. I was of a certain age making eight or $900 a night just dancing on a stage as an exotic dancer. No private dances, none of that or whatever. And I wasn't like a swole, super muscular guy. I could actually dance. I had a little bit of dance training and my body was, my body, my booty was still fat. And I could do stuff on stage and that made me money. That's not enough now because people pull out their phone and see that and then some. So what more is there? You have to be able to perform on stage and have additional support content to be able to engage people in order to optimize what you can do now. And most of that is done outside of the bars and clubs. So now you're taking element out. So now you have, you're cutting into the demographic that would normally spend money to go out because they don't have to go out anymore for it. They have it in their living room, in their hand, in their privacy. Nobody has to see them. They don't have to be embarrassed or nervous in what they're doing because no one knows. No one has to know. Or if they want to be the one doing it, people bought ring lights and wear masks and everything, do all kinds of stuff. And funny, I asked the question what somebody misses about nightlife. A friend of mine said, um, back rooms. I was like, well, first of all, I always thought those were nasty. Second of all, that's not even a thing that's necessary anymore because of all these apps and social media and things like that. People don't have to go to back rooms to meet people anonymously to do things. You just pull out your phone and say, oh, I'm discreet, meet at a hotel or meet in a dark, all kinds of other ways. And now going out is less, there's less of an appeal. There's less of a necessity for it. So enough about the past and my gripes. Let's look to the future. So, with everything coming back around, hopefully the industry will recover in its own time from all the issues that have come about because of COVID-19. A couple of things are going to have to change, and a couple of things are going to have to evolve. And change and evolve are two different things. Um, change means... There's going to need to be like a structural operational movement to put things back on track. Evolve means things are going to have to get better and more caught up with the time we're in. With everything going on with COVID-19, a lot of times nightlife venues were not treated with the same um, administrative care, we'll call it, as traditional restaurants and bars. But it needs to be done now because we're seeing that safety, health, and sanitation are now in the spotlight of people's eyes. People are paying attention to how clean and sanitary your stuff is. If you have soap in the bathrooms, if you have hand sanitizer in the bathrooms, how your staff is handling things. Are they washing your hands? These are things that are going to need to be 
drilled into people's heads and enforced. Um, we're also going to need to be mindful as people in the nightlife industry. We have to change the way we carry and treat ourselves. If we are not well, we need to take time to get well. We have lost a number of people recently, and between, we'll say, COVID-related and non-COVID-related reasons, it's putting a light on the health and wellness aspect of how we need to take care of ourselves. A lot of us <clears throat> came up in this industry running fast and loose, balls of the wall, party hard and sleep little, sleep for a little bit type of situations, and we're seeing the results of that, whether it involved you working obsessively, whether it involved you using drugs, sex, or whatever your vice was, it all catches up with you eventually, and we all have to take accountability for ourselves. As far as evolution goes, we're seeing that the world is digital. We have to now get into the mindset of adjusting and transitioning our businesses to be more cyber and digital friendly. Cashless payment options, not only for um, products and services the restaurants offer, but also nightclubs and bars for drinks, bottle service, even tipping entertainers, um, Venmo and Cash App to avoid the cash handling aspect of it. Because we're seeing that that's an issue, like I said, we have to be more fervent on our safety and sanitation measures. Also, digital communication and updating websites and things like that and staying on top of that so people can get information in a timely, organized fashion. You can reply to them knowing how to manipulate different formats for things, how you do your reservations and confirm things. All of these things will play into factors because we are living in the age of world convenience. People can get food, liquor, groceries delivered to their house. People are having less and less of a reason to go out, so we need to make sure that we can give them a reason to start going out again, other than the fact they've been cooped up in the house for almost a year. But we need to make sure that when they go out, there's an experience worth going out. Making sure your lighting is right, making sure your visuals are right, making sure your music and sound system are on point, making sure you have the best of the best possible in your venue to make people have a desire to leave their house and spend their money. But there are things the customers need to evolve into. Please understand that you are going out for a good time and to be provided with service. Know the venues you're going to and what they offer so you're getting the experience you want. Not every venue is meant to accommodate everybody, and that's no tea, no shade. It's not trying to be exclusionary. But if you go to a Spanish club, and you don't like Spanish music, you can't complain that all they play was Spanish music. Read the room, sis. If you go to an Italian restaurant and complain that they don't have chicken fingers, sorry, um, with your accommodations, understand that you have to put a little bit of effort into your experience and make sure you go to the right place to give the experience you want. Not everybody's going to drop what they're doing to change their complete programming structure just because you walked in the door. If a restaurant is a carniceria, don't go in there asking for vegan stuff like they're obligated to put vegan stuff on the menu to accommodate you. A lot of places will try to, but respect the integrity of where you're going. 
Respect the integrity of the creative vision and the work that's going into building a place. Yes, the customer is key to their success, but the customer also needs to understand you play a part in your experience as well. Mind your manners. People are working hard. If you've never worked in the service industry, you will probably never understand the stresses people go through dealing with people. And be gracious. Yes, we have to be polite. We have to be smiley. We have to give you good service. Well, I don't. I'm management. I hide in the corner most of the time and have the grimacing look of death on my face. But when you come in, don't take out your frustrations on your day on the staff, the place that they're providing you service. If you are truly a hyper picky person and very specific, be very specific about what you want, but also be polite about it. Don't be smug and entitled with things, especially coming directly off of what all of us have been through the past couple of months. No one wants to walk into that. And we people who are patrons of these views need to lose the mentality of people saying, well, that's what we pay you for. No, you are paying me to provide you service and make sure you have a good time within the parameters of what this venue can offer you. Anything above and beyond that, we will try to do and accommodate, but it's not guaranteed and it's not also not necessarily necessary because you're coming for what we're offering you. And you should be able to take that and make what you want of it within the parameters of what we have available. So... Just to wrap this up, and I'm not going to do like a rant after because this whole episode was a giant rant for the most part. As time goes on, things are going to change. And nightlife is no different. Hospitality in general is no different. So much has changed across the greater industry at large. It's baffling. But what we need to understand is we need to adapt and change with it as is necessary. But also remember that some things don't need to change or we need to make sure they're changing for the right reason so that we can still provide what we are meant to provide in this industry because it is a service. It's the most underrated branch of the industry because there's so many people that don't want to be involved with or don't have access to it on the same level as they used to, or even the care for it that that people used to. So we need to figure out how to bring some of that caring back for the people who work in the industry and some of that, um, how do I word it? I don't want to say the luxury, but the resonance it had with people going out and treating it like it was an event, making it fun and interesting to go out again, where it's not just, you're just going out to go out, get dressed, put an outfit on, have money set aside, give yourself a little budget so you can have a little cute little night. Um, Stop all the deal hunting and looking for discounts. I know money is tight, but if you don't have the money, then don't go out. Don't force the experience to be watered down to accommodate everybody when it wasn't meant to. And I'm not saying that to be offensive. It's just, if you look at the history of nightlife and bars and stuff like that, people went to be seen and to go out and to enjoy themselves. And the people that couldn't, it gave them an aspiration to work towards to the point where they could do that. And a lot of that has been lost because everything is so dumbed down and watered down and overly accessible to people that 
I've literally, this is the epitome of this. I've literally seen people go out to a club on a Friday or Saturday night in pajama pants and house shoes and think that was okay. And this sounds pretentious and judgy and whatever, but there's a time and a place that (laughs) that's not what you wear when you go out. Well, it's what I'm comfortable in. But then you're going to demand all this extra stuff and extra demands of service when you look like you should be sitting on your couch watching Netflix, drinking your Capri Sun. Make the, the puzzle pieces need to match. You need to fit into the puzzle just as much the venue, the service, and everything else. We're going to do our best to have good music, good entertainment, good service, good liquor. If you got food, good food. But you have to meet us halfway with the experience aspect of it. Because when people see you, it's also a reflection of the venue. It tells people about the venue and what they're walking into when they see the people that come into a place. Yes, the onus is on the venue to make sure we are doing our damnedest to create the perfect atmosphere for you to want to spend money and want to have a good time and come and join us and share with us. But you need to understand what you contribute to that picture as well. Well, I'm spending money, but it's beyond that. You come to places because you see with your eyes. You judge the appearance and the aesthetic and the ambiance. You are part of that to someone else walking in as well. I'm not going to say anybody got to break the bank trying to enjoy themselves. But match the effort of the venue you want to try to frequent. Because I'm sure, coming back off of all of this, places are going to pull out all the stops and come back with a vengeance. And you should too. You should want to be out there. And I got stuff sitting here in my house I am dying to wear, either out or to work. Because when I go out, I want to go out. I want it to be special. It's not just, oh, it's what I do every week. No, it's a it's an event. It's what's supposed to be. And if we can recapture a little bit of that magic, I think it'll be a chain reaction because that will help with a lot of the stress of the other recovery from what's going on. It will go back to that point of when nightlife was the escape from the real world that people needed to decompress and let loose a little bit. So when that those, the sun comes up and the lights are off and that venue's supposed to muse off, You've let go of all of that. You can focus on the rest of your week, getting your shit back on track, making your money at your job, whatever you're dealing with, and you know you have this safe place to go to escape all the bullshit. <laughs>